This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. The Post and Courier got some exciting news last week. Our newsroom was named a finalist in the local reporting category of the Pulitzer Prizes for Rising Waters, our ongoing series about flooding, sea level rise, and the accelerating effects of climate change in the low country. And then really right after that announcement, we got a lot of rain. We saw a familiar scene in Charleston last weekend. Streets were submerged, stalling cars. Shoppers at the Charleston City Market had to scramble on top of display booths to escape the floodwaters. In some places, the water was thigh high. It was more evidence to back up why this continues to be a pressing issue for Charleston and why the city is considering doing something as big as changing its zoning map to take flooding and sea level rise into account. We'll talk more about that later. First, here's project reporter Tony Bartlemy. So I thought there was some irony in the fact that Rising Waters was named a Pulitzer finalist, and then the next day, really that whole weekend, we get all of this rain and really some of the some of the worst flooding we've we've seen in a while. So I was hoping, can you describe this? The weather that we saw over the weekend and the flooding that we saw. Yeah, it was one of those weird scenes where we hadn't had a lot of rain and then all of a sudden it got more humid and and you could just feel the air getting heavier and thicker. And and what happens is when the air gets filled with this moisture, uh, it all it takes is just a little bit of nudge from some sort of twist in the jet stream for it to all just start out of falling. And then it creates this, this ratchet, this feedback loop where um, the rain, more rain creates even more rain. And then pretty soon we had something like five to six inches in places downtown within a, a couple of hours. So it was a re- kind of a ridiculous amount of water that just poured on our city. I live downtown in one of the lowest spots. So it's really easy for me to report. Uh, basically, the water comes up my up to up to my steps, two or three feet. It's it's thigh deep in some parts around the corner from me. So basically I just get on my waders. They're sort of required gear here in Charleston. So get get my waders. And then I just started walking around looking at all the cars that were submerged. And it's pretty dramatic. And I know something that you tweeted over the weekend was one of the early stories from Rising Waters and said that basically we could just republish this story this weekend. Uh, What did you mean by that? You know, what, what did what we saw over the weekend tell us about this ongoing story, right, that we've been reporting on the speed of climate change that we're seeing in Charleston? I think the most important thing to know about what's going on is that we are seeing an increase in the frequency and intensity of these storms. As the as the climate gets warmer, the air above us and around us gets uh, can hold more moisture. And that means it can rain heavier. And we're seeing a, something like a 20 27% increase in the in, uh, in the frequency and intensity of of these downpours that we're seeing. So it's really the the climate change story really is all about the accelerating forces of climate change whether it's downpours or more or more and higher tides.
Because of storms like the one we saw last weekend, and the fact that these issues are expected to keep speeding up, Charleston city officials are contemplating whether to overhaul the city's zoning rules to limit development in flood-prone areas and encourage growth in less vulnerable parts of the city. That would be a big and complicated undertaking, but some argue that it's necessary. Here's reporter Andrew Brown, who's been covering the city of Charleston. So we're talking about zoning laws today and how the city might change them to account for flooding issues. But just first, what are zoning laws typically used to accomplish? Zoning is uh, in most large cities throughout the country. It's a type of land use laws in which the, the city can, it's kind of the primary tool that city officials use to kind of plan their city and make sure that there's smart growth going on. In the story, I kind of give some examples of like zoning, make sure that, you know, you don't have an industrial chemical facility located next door to a a bedroom community, you know, a residential community, or make sure that you don't have a bar district located uh, next to a public school. It's really meant to make sure that cities are well planned out and that one land use over here doesn't conflict with a neighboring property. Throughout U.S. history over the past century, that's, that's been the primary use. So how would Charleston use zoning to address flooding and sea level rise? Because that would be something new for the city. I want to emphasize that this is kind of in the early stages and the specifics of how they would go about this aren't really even figured out yet. What, what's happening right now is the city has, for the first time, done a very significant study of the land within the city limits and kind of looking at it from a hydrological perspective, meaning, you know, where is water at and how does it flow? And from a elevation standpoint, this became a priority, obviously, over the past decade because of sea level rise, uh, threat of hurricanes coming up the coast, more powerful rainstorms. And so they've done all of that, that groundwork. They've laid the groundwork to try and figure out where is the best place to grow in the city moving forward. None of that really changes the city's laws, but but in the next couple of years, there's a lot of talk of city officials creating a new zoning map in which they overlay this elevation data and their, the information they have on you know water flow within the city to designate where are safe spaces and, and where do we need to restrict new development moving forward. Again, the specifics of like what this is going to look like whenever it it may actually be voted on by the city council is unknown at this point, but the general goal would be to, you know, restrict new or expanded development in low lying areas, especially along tidal basins or in areas where there's significant stormwater runoff. Think Church Creek and West Ashley, right? And to encourage new development and any type of growth within the city on higher elevation areas where there's also access to public transportation routes in the future. Um, And so that's really what the city is moving towards. Um, The city just created a new comprehensive plan, which is like a 10-year forecast um, with recommendations to city officials. Um, And and that comprehensive plan is pointing directly towards this zoning strategy. What's the potential payoff for the city of, of doing something like that, of, like you said, 
restricting development in those low-lying areas and encouraging new development in those areas that are less prone to flooding. I mean, this is this is getting to the very heart of like what a lot of cities in the United States uh, are dealing with is that is flooding and and recurring flooding are huge cost burdens on cities. The city of Charleston has used federal funds and other other funding to buy out homes recently in recent years. We've covered it um, in the Church Creek Basin. Property owners are paying to elevate their homes because they're in flood prone areas. You know, the city, if development goes into low low lying areas or has gone into low lying areas, there's a lot of upkeep on infrastructure like stormwater, roads. A single flood can really damage the underlying roadway. It can damage the, the stormwater tunnels that are in place. So we're talking about millions of dollars, probably billions of dollars, if they can do it correctly, in saved costs for the city moving forward. And that's important whenever the city is already under huge financial strains for potentially creating a seawall around the Charleston Peninsula, for upgrading its aging stormwater systems, not just in downtown, but in West Ashley, Johns Island, James Island, Daniel Island. It's essentially a cost saver if they can do this correctly and kind of focus on the priorities of making sure that you don't put risky development in place to begin with. Now, the city does have some rules on the books in terms of development and and, and how something needs to be built that address flooding. What are some of those things that the city is already regulating with flooding and sea level rise in mind? One of the most important ones that they upgraded their their stormwater codes to handle is to make sure that any new development in the city actually improves or, or retains more stormwater than it would before the development happened. You don't want to increase the flow of water off of a property after development occurs because what that leads to is downstream, right? Your neighbors end up having higher water because, you say, a a new grocery store goes in in West Ashley and they pave over 10 acres that weren't previously asphalt. You know, the city is, is being very honed in on making sure that those types of developments and every type of development retains stormwater so that during major hurricanes or the rain bombs that we saw this weekend, you won't have all of that water immediately flowing to adjacent properties and washing out people's homes or, you know, causing damage to other properties downstream. Now, Charleston, of course, has very severe flooding issues, but definitely is not alone in that. Has any other city done something like this? Or if the rezoning were to happen, would that be something new? One of the cities that was mentioned that has done some similar work with zoning and trying to use their their knowledge on flooding and elevation, kind of instruct how they, they zone properties, the only one that I know of is like Norfolk in Virginia. They're kind of in a similar situation. They're on the coast. They have all of these tidal flats around the city. They're they're in maritime port, right, just across the river. And so they've tried to, you know, overlay the data they have on their city with elevation and flooding and kind of do a carrot and a stick to developers to try and essentially make sure they're not developing in flood-prone areas I've been told that that may not go as far as what the city of Charleston could consider. So uh, there are some cities out there that have tried it. Charleston, if the council votes to approve this type of zoning application, they really would be at the cutting edge of many cities in the United States. 
some of the people I talked to expect that there will be more municipalities and local governments moving towards this type of thing. So also, we know that Charleston is a very hot real estate market. And I'm wondering, is this going to be an easy sell? This also means definitely restrictions. So it's it would, yes, encourage development in areas that are less flood prone, but still you're discouraging development in some areas that would have to be part of it. What are city council members' thoughts on whether this is something that people could get behind? Some of them believe they have to restrict development, right? They don't want to throw away money to have a developer build a multi-use development somewhere low-lying, and then five years from now, as flooding continues to kind of worsen, have to buy them out in order to get them off that property and to turn it back into wetlands or something. Mike Seekings, who represents downtown Charleston, Ross Appel, who represents parts of West Ashley, I spoke to both of them for the story because they're kind of keyed in on this issue. They both think that the city needs to give developers a place to expand. And that's also part of this plan, right? It's like they recognize that Charleston is, is booming They understand that there's demand to live here still. And so that's why the city and planners are also designating areas all throughout the city where they think they want to encourage future development or denser development. Denser development can take a bunch of different, it can take a bunch of different routes, but you know, you're largely talking about probably mixed use development, which you have commercial space on the bottom, kind of multifamily housing above that. As part of the new comprehensive plan, they've kindly designated areas like Upper Meeting Street on the peninsula as a denser area for development. They they designated places along uh, Maybank Highway as kind of a place for mixed-use, little denser development, just along Maybank, not into the outer reaches of the island. And they've done that in West Ashley, James Island, given these little pockets where, where growth they think growth should happen. They see that as absolutely necessary because... You know, Charleston doesn't just have a flooding problem. There's a lot of issues facing Charleston with all the growth. And so their point was that the other major problem facing Charleston right now is housing affordability. And it's like, how do you fix home affordability and housing affordability without increasing the housing stock? Mike Seekings, councilman from downtown Charleston, essentially said, like, we can't cut off that future. And so it really is a balancing act right now. It's like, where do you grow and how do you grow? I don't think that issue is going away anytime soon. Yeah, it seems like affordable housing is that recurring issue that almost no matter what we're talking about, if it's the metro Charleston area, there is some way that that is connected. And this is a very visual situation where quite literally there is water encroaching on the city. So it does make sense. You have to shift things concentrate development in in areas where you are safer from that encroaching water. Do we have any sense of maybe what residents might think of that? Because that could change the the look of the area, the look of, of the city, if we do see some, some denser development in areas. So that's very interesting. So the, the city's planning department did a bunch of surveys, essentially, whenever they were creating their new comprehensive plan talking about flooding, talking about development. And the feedback that they got from a bunch of residents kind of struck me. So everybody recognizes, you know, a a vast majority of Charleston residents say like, 
They're worried about their property being flooded in the future or their home being damaged. So they recognize the threat and everybody seems to kind of, there's a, seems to be a large amount of support for this type of strategy for down zoning in flood prone areas to make sure that future development doesn't go there. The problem, and I think the, the, the issue that council members are going to face if they're going to pass something like this is those same people seem to reject the idea that there should be denser development in higher areas of the city. That's where the opposition seems to be. Many people who were asked, you know, do you, do you support denser development in those types of areas? And I think it was like, it was definitely below a majority and it was very strong disapproval of that. Count, again, council members who are looking to the, towards this stuff they think that's just a public information problem. They think it's a public perception problem. You know, they think that dense development is essentially become a, a dirty word and it doesn't need to be. But I, I think that's really where, where the fight is going to happen. I think some Charlestonians and the people who already live here think we need to do something about flooding. Yes, we don't want development in risky areas. But, oh, by the way, we also don't want dense development in the higher elevation areas. Yeah, well, that also comes back to another recurring tension here, and that's just growth. Some people hoping that the growth could stop or the population here could stay about what it is, but it's definitely growing. And as it grows, right, then we cycle back to affordable housing and needing enough housing stock. Another thing in terms of going back to maybe the perspective of people who want to develop in the area. I know another argument is that having zoning like this might just be clearer. This is a spot where you should go. This is a spot where you shouldn't. Yeah, it's so the thing that was described to me, some council members believe that, you know, basing the zoning code in Charleston and rewriting it around flooding and sea level rise and, and that type of issue, elevation, will make it easier for developers to know right up from the get-go, how many homes can I build on this property? Like what type of development is possible here? Right now, the city's zoning categories, like many cities across the country, are broad. They're general broad distinctions. Is this for a business district? Is this for a commercial district? Is this single family residential zoning? Is this um, you know multi-use zoning? Is this multi-family residential? And what can happen sometimes, I, I talk to the city's stormwater director, is the developers who may not do all of their homework or may not be fully knowledgeable of like the city's stormwater codes and stuff like that, they'll look at the property they have and what it's zoned for. And they'll say, oh, great, this allows me to build 20 homes on this, this many acres in Charleston. And they, they go forward, kind of come in with their site plans to, to do that. And then they go through the stormwater permitting process and the stormwater team comes back and goes, well, actually, you know, our new codes, we're trying to make sure we don't flood out neighboring properties. You can actually only build five homes here. Um, and then those developers, you know, because they base all of the development off of costs that are estimated and kind of how much revenue that they'll be able to make off of it. Some council members and like the stormwater team in Charleston think that by meshing zoning and flooding, it will just be far more transparent to everyone from the get-go of here's what you can build on any given piece of property based on what the city looks like as far as flooding and, and sea level rise and the future effects of climate change. 
this is still preliminary. When might we see some action on this? When might we see if this were to move closer to being planned in detail and eventually adopted? When might we see that? So the city uh, council will vote this year on a comprehensive plan that they've already drafted up. Again, that comprehensive plan is just recommendations. It has no force of law. It doesn't change any laws within the city. But throughout this process, what the planning department has said, and they've told me in an interview, is that going into next year, if they have enough money in the budget, or maybe the year after that, they need to have enough cash to be able to hire a consultant to kind of completely overhaul the city's zoning code. That may sound simple, but it's really not, you know, you get into a lot of technical review there. Um, so they need an expert consulting firm to come in and help with that process. That That's going to cost some money. It is unlikely to um, happen this year, but it very well could happen in the next couple of years in which the city hires this consulting firm to kind of put pen to paper and, and make this a, a, a realistic plan zoning overhaul that the city council could vote on. And that's really whenever you will see the public process kick into high gear. You'll see, you know, public meetings held all over the city because this is going to affect everyone. And I, I suspect the city will will really roll out the red carpet to make sure that everybody's voices are heard because in something that important, you don't want to have people coming in after the fact and saying, I didn't know this was happening. The work on our Rising Waters series is far from over, and it continues to work because it involves so much of our newsroom, from our photographers to reporters who cover climate and breaking news and business, and our digital team members who make sure those stories reach our readers. And of course, members of our project team, like Tony. One of the things I really loved about the Rising Waters project was that it was this massive collaboration um, involving, I don't know, maybe 20 reporters and photographers and digital folks. And, and we all, you know, when, when a storm was approaching, we would all deploy across the city and, and, and then start feeding information, uh, very quickly. And it was all done just, you know, it, it, just imagine 20 people out there in the water and getting drenched and then trying to feed information you know, as the, amid the thunder and lightning, and then uh, trying to put it all together in a coherent way. Um, it was a big challenge and, and something kind of new. You don't see that kind of depth typically in, in a breaking news story, really anywhere. And the Pulitzer uh, jurors recognize that. So what's next for Rising Waters? So we've got a, a, a bunch of other uh, uh, stories in the pipeline, and, and, and including one where we're going we're gonna to take a trip to a, a very cold place. I won't say when because I don't want to jinx it, but we're going to go to a place and we're going to watch perhaps the most significant thing that's happening when it comes to sea rise in Charleston, even though it's thousands of miles away. All right, listeners, that's all for today. If you haven't checked out our Rising Waters project yet, I highly encourage you to do so. We'll share the link to the project homepage in today's show notes. We also have past episodes of this podcast related to the Rising Waters series. There's one about the lessons learned in the first year of reporting for this project, 
and another about plans to possibly build a seawall around Charleston. Go back and give those episodes a listen and let us know what you think. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for this podcast or ideas for future episodes, email us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or message us on Twitter at understandsc. Thanks so much for listening, and we will be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.